Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be back again in Black Rock and see how you've grown. Wow. <laughs> it's wonderful to see the Lord at work in this part of the world. So, thank you for inviting me to come and share God's Word this morning. It's a wonderful privilege to do that. Can we just pray for a moment before we come to the Word? Loving Father, how wonderful it is that you have shared your Word with us, that you have revealed yourself to us, because we could never know you if you had not done that. And so we pray that as we turn to your Word just now, you will help us to be able to understand it, and help me to be able to explain it and to preach what you want me to preach. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, Psalm 130 is about a cry. And if you're a parent of a small child, you know the cry of your child. You know that piercing cry that shatters the silence of the night and makes you rise and run to your child, or at least elbow your spouse to run. We've all had that problem, or at least those of us who are parents have had that problem. But I haven't had that problem for a while. Our eldest son used to cry out like that. He's just turned 50. But I can still remember that cry, and that cry that makes a parent respond immediately. It's what we do instinctively. And Psalm 130 is about a cry like that, a cry to our Father in heaven, our great heavenly parent, who always hears and always responds to the cries of his children. Now, this psalm belongs to a group of 15 psalms. You might have seen in the title there, they're called Songs of Ascents, running from Psalm 120 to 134. And they were sung on pilgrimage as the people of Israel went up to Jerusalem year by year. But the psalm also belongs to another group of seven psalms called penitential psalms. Psalms which speak about confession of sin. Psalms like 32 and 51 and so on. So this little psalm belongs to two different groups of psalms in the book of Psalms. But it's a precious little psalm. And it has comforted many, many people of God down through the history of the church. It was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. And John Wesley, on the day he was converted, was greatly blessed through the singing, through hearing the singing of this psalm. So this morning, we're going to make our way through it. So keep your Bibles open, and we want to look at some of the great truths that we find here. The opening line of the psalm is very powerful. Out of the depths, I cry to you O Lord. In the past few years, many people have been 
in the depths. We have had the pandemic. We've had the war in Ukraine. Now we have a housing crisis. Some of us have also had more personal depths which we have been in. Health issues, family troubles, difficulties at work, and so on. But the phrase, out of the depths, makes us think of Jonah when he was thrown overboard, sinking down into the depths of the sea. Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish uses words from this psalm. Jonah was not only sinking literally into the depths, but he was also sinking spiritually because he had persisted in disobeying God and rather than repent, he just wanted to end his life. Jonah was truly in the depths in every sense of the word and he couldn't save himself. His only hope was a cry, a cry from the depths. And it's amazing how many psalms begin with that cry. Especially if you read near the beginning of the psalms. You find again and again, the psalm begins with a cry to the Lord. To you, Lord, I cry. Hear my voice, and so on. But like Jonah, the psalmist here in Psalm 130 was in the depths because of his sins. He had drifted away from God. And to be in the depths because of our sins is the worst place to be, carrying a burden of guilt and longing to be free of it. Of course, we are told nowadays that we must forget about our guilt. We must ignore it. Don't dwell on it. But if we do that, it doesn't change anything because we know in our hearts that we are guilty before God, that it's a fact. But in the second place, let's focus on that cry. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my prayer. Be attentive to my cry for mercy. We must make that cry to God. God will not help us until he hears that cry. We must make that cry to the Lord. Just like the parent doesn't rise up in the middle of the night, the child's not crying. No. And so with us also, we must cry out to the Lord in our troubles and especially in our sins. And the Bible is full of people who cried out and received mercy. You remember the story of Bartimaeus. In his blindness, he lay by the roadside. And he recognized who Jesus was because he called him the son of David. So here's this poor blind beggar, and he knows more about Jesus than the Pharisees and scribes. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still, we read, and he called him. And he lifted him out of the depths of his blindness and also of his sin and rescued him and forgave him all his sins. 
and Jesus can do that for you too. He's just a cry away. Zacchaeus was another man who was lifted. He was a tax collector. And when Jesus came to him, he cried out, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. Lord, I'm ready to make amends. And Jesus heard his cry. Again, the thief on the cross, dying in agony because of his own sins, he cried out, Lord, remember me. And Jesus, even on the cross, lifted him out of the depths of his own sin and hopelessness to the joy of forgiveness and eternal life. And when we have sinned and we cry out in sincerity and earnestness, he hears us. And many of us here this morning can testify that we cried out, he lifted us. Now we come to verses 3 and 4. And I want to take these two verses together because these two verses are the very heart of the psalm. And we will spend some time looking at sin and forgiveness in verses 3 and 4. The psalmist raises an important question in verse 3. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, or if you, O Lord, should keep a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? What a question. Does God keep a record of sins? Perhaps you hope he doesn't. But how could he judge the world if he didn't keep a record? Of course he does. But don't take my word for it. Listen to these verses from the scriptures. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment of every careless word they have spoken. That's scary. And then at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 20, John tells us, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. God does keep a record of sin, and all sin will be punished. But we must rush on to verse 4, because there's a great word at the beginning of verse 4. But, but with you there is forgiveness. How thankful we are for the buts of the Bible. They often introduce great news. Paul used them in Ephesians and Romans. In Ephesians 2 verse 4 he said, We were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love, towards us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Or listen to Paul again in Romans 5, verse 8. We were powerless, but God demonstrates his own love for us. But bring good news. Not always, but mostly. 
I'm thinking back to Naaman in the Old Testament. His but wasn't good news. We read at the beginning of um, the 2 Kings 5, where Naaman was a great man with his master. He was popular, and he had won great victories, and then comes the but. But he was a leper. But most of the buts in the Bible bring us the good news that God has had mercy on us because of his great love for us. So, does God keep a record of sins? Yes. But in the case of those who believe, those who believe in Jesus, our sins will never be counted against us because Jesus has paid the penalty for us. The psalmist asks in verse 3, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Or if you were to mark iniquity, who could stand? Think about that word stand for a moment. Who could stand? Who could stand before God? Paul tells us in Romans 5 that believers have a new standing with God. He tells, in in Psalm 1, the psalmist says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. But now, Paul tells us in Romans 5, we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We have a standing, a new standing in Christ, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Because of Jesus and the cross, by grace, we can stand before God. And the psalmist uses... Sorry, I've got my pages mixed up. (laughs) And there are many scriptures that assure us of God's grace in giving us this new standing. Listen to David in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. There is the evidence that God has passed over and forgiven the sins of believers. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. God told his people in the days of Isaiah, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. The prophet Micah says about the Lord, You will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. It is true. With you, there is forgiveness. Paul gives us the same answer. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. But such, such forgiveness came at great cost. If you go down to the last verse of 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin, to be a sin offering for us, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. And so because of Jesus' 
with God there is forgiveness. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With the Apostles' Creed, we can say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Do you believe that? But let me ask you a more, que- a more personal question. Can you say, I believe in the forgiveness of my sins? I believe they're gone because of Jesus and because I've cried out to him and he has received me. God's forgiveness is for the here and now. With you, there is forgiveness here and now. But there's something else at the end of verse 4. If you've experienced God's forgiveness, it leads us to a new respect and reverence for God. That you may be feared. Another translation puts it like this. With you there is forgiveness so that we should stand in awe of you. We should be so thankful for forgiveness that it causes us to be amazed that God would do such a thing. When I was a child, we used to sing a hymn in church, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. Yes, we should stand in awe of him. We should be so thankful that he has had mercy on us. Jesus once told a parable, parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, and he told it to show us a proper attitude towards forgiveness. It's the story of a servant who had been forgiven a huge debt, like millions, and then he goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him just a few euro, and he tries to choke him. And Jesus, the whole point of the parable is that it's unbelievable that anyone having been forgiven such a huge debt would then try to recover such a small debt and refuse forgiveness to a fellow human being. We have been forgiven a huge debt. Where is our fear for the Lord who would do this for us? Our reverence and our awe and respect for him because of what he has done. But with you, Lord, there is forgiveness. Praise your holy name. Moving on to verses 5 and 6. Waiting for the Lord. I wait for the Lord, the psalmist says. The psalmist puts his hope in the Lord. He's not waiting for forgiveness. He's already received that. But he's waiting for the presence of the Lord, God's felt presence, just to know that he is with him, that he is there. Those times when the Holy Spirit makes God's forgiveness so real to us, perhaps when we're reading the word in the early morning or whenever we read it, or perhaps when we're praying 
we suddenly have that feeling. Yes, Lord, you are mine. Yes, I am yours. Yes, I'm truly forgiven. We don't experience that all the time. Sometimes we have to wait for it. Sometimes the clouds come in. But we must wait because God will come to us. In his word, I put my hope, he says. God's word is the basis for everything that we believe. Here we find the great statements of truth, the great promises. These are God's guarantees to us, his word. He says, he who comes to me, I will never drive away. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's word is also full of examples of real people who received this forgiveness and rejoiced in it. People like Abraham, David, Peter, Mary Magdalene, Saul of Tarsus, and so on. So the psalmist uses the illustration of watchmen waiting for the morning, and he repeats it. The watchmen persevere through the darkness, longing for the light to come. But there is one thing they are sure of, will come. They have confidence that the morning will come. It always does. And so does the Lord. He always comes through for us. And whatever depth you may be in this morning, the Lord will come through for you. Wait for him. Just like the watchman waiting for the morning, he will come through for you. And the light may be nearer than you realize. Sometimes when he makes us wait, he has his reasons for making us wait. He's teaching us patience. And afterwards, we will understand why we had to wait. But wait. Remember Isaiah's great promise. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up with wings like eagles. In Luke 18, Jesus told a story about a persistent widow who kept pestering a judge to hear her case. And she wouldn't take no for an answer. And eventually the judge got fed up with her and he decided her case. And Jesus said, we must not think that God is like that. He will not keep us waiting more than is necessary. He will not keep putting us off, Jesus says. He will see that we get justice and quickly. So God is the very opposite of that judge in the story. He never keeps us waiting without good cause. And waiting time is learning time. Like the watchmen, we know the morning will come. We know the Lord will hear and answer. Finally, we come to the last two verses. Verses 7 and 8, where we see full redemption. The psalmist knows he has been forgiven. And now he appeals to God's people in verse 7. People of God, cry out to the Lord, and you too will experience this forgiveness. You will experience his unfailing love and his full redemption. Cry out to him because he forgives. The word redemption comes from the old 
picture of slavery and the slave being set free because the price has been paid. And that's what Jesus has done for us. The redemption he made for us at Calvary was full. He didn't pay 90% of our price. No, he paid the full price of our sin. And so the psalmist says, there is full redemption, nothing remaining to be paid. Like the hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There's no more to be paid. The psalm ends with this remarkable prophecy in verse 8. He will redeem Israel from all their sins. And other translations have it, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And some see this as a messianic prophecy. God himself would redeem his people. Not an angel, not a prophet, but God himself would come in the person of his son to die on the cross to redeem his people. Now, we don't know if the Jews who sang this song going up to the temple, if they knew that that was what would happen. We don't know if they understood it in that way. But we know from history and from what has happened since, from the New Testament, that this is true. And so we have the very essence of the gospel in this little psalm, that God himself redeemed his people from all their sins. So, as we come to the end of this little psalm, whatever depths we're in today, let us be sure that we have, first of all, got the forgiveness that this psalm speaks about, that the Lord has lifted us out of our sins, that we're standing on that firm ground of Christ's work on the cross. Because the other depths that we may be in are never as deep as the depth of sin. And the same Lord who lifted us out of our sins will lift us from the other depths as well. No doubt there may be more depths to go through in the future. So let's take this little psalm with us. We have a great God. And there is forgiveness with him. And he himself has made redemption for us. And he has delivered Israel. Let's stand in awe of him. And worship him with thankfulness and joy. And if we're in a waiting period, let's, let's be patient. He will come through for us. Because he himself, the Lord of glory, has redeemed us at Calvary's cross. May God bless his word. For us. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for this wonderful little psalm that has so much of the gospel in it, that includes so much of what we need to know to be right with you. We thank you. We pray that every one of us here this morning may be able to rise out of the depths, whatever they are, and to have confidence in our great Redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.